The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and he talked to them about the foolishness of preaching. He said that it was God's wisdom that from the very beginning that he would use the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. And what that tells us is that from the very beginning of time, the sermon has been really the centerpiece of God's work in the world. Now, for an unbeliever or someone who doesn't know Christ, the sermon really is the most boring thing in the world. It's a chance to rest or to think or to daze or for torment. But for the believer in Jesus Christ or someone who knows the power of God in it, a sermon can be the most powerful thing that exists in all of the universe. And so the hope for anyone that is going to sit and listen to the preaching of the Word of God, the hope is that there will be Holy Spirit power that's behind the giving of that sermon so that the power of that sermon isn't just in the speech that is seeking to reach the intellect, but that it's something that comes from another world and that it transverses the barriers of the mind and that it reaches into the heart and then produces a change within the life. That's the hope of anyone who knows the power of preaching. And for those of us that have been in a situation where there's preaching or a sermon, but that preaching is lacking or is void of the Holy Spirit's power, there is nothing more disappointing to us than that. Now, I wonder that if you were to ask God, what are the top five sermons that he has heard in the time of all the preaching that he has empowered from the time that he created man upon the earth, I wonder what five sermons God would look at and say, these are my absolute uh, favorites. And I don't know how God would measure that uh, or, or quantify what he would call a quality sermon. Would he point to Peter's sermon in the book of Acts in chapter 2 where he preached and that day a short sermon yielded a harvest of 3,000 souls? Would it be Stephen right before his stoning death where he recalled and recanted so much Old Testament history and laid the foundation for the salvation of who would become the Apostle Paul. Would that be on God's list? Or would it be someone from beyond the apostolic age, perhaps Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Would that be one that God would look at and say, that's one of my favorites? Or perhaps John Bunyan's grace abounding to the chief of sinners, or maybe something by Martin Luther in, in, in relation to what took place during the Reformation in his time. What would God say is the top five sermons that he has ever preached? Now, I don't know about God, but I know that for every Christian who understands the power of preaching and what a sermon can do in the life, I know for each of us, we would have our own top five. Maybe we can't remember the date or even the speaker and maybe not even anymore the scripture wherein that sermon came from. But I know for myself personally, there have been sermons that I've heard throughout my years as a believer that have done so much in my heart in terms of what they've produced in transforming me and changing me and building something in me that I could never have put there myself, that I would list them and say, these were my top five. Now, as we study Luke chapter 6 and we see this sermon that Jesus gave, I wonder where that ranks when compared with every other sermon that's ever been given. 
Perhaps it is probably the greatest sermon that ever was preached, this sermon that is given to us by Jesus. Now recall with me, if you would, if you were here last week, that this sermon is called, and it's kind of a, a misrepresentation of it, the Sermon on the Plain. And the reason for that is because of the place where the sermon was given. It says that Jesus came down from a mountain, and he stood in a flat place, or in a plain, and he began to speak to the multitude and to his disciples, and this was the sermon that came out of that. And the reason I point that out again is because this is not the Sermon on the Mount that was given in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, that other great famous sermon by Jesus. It's very similar, and it bears much of the same content, but it is very different in a lot of ways, not the least of which is the location. Now, remember that this sermon was given to disciples, and that's important that we remember that. This was not given to the multitude as the watermark wherein if you can meet this criteria, then you will be called good enough to get into heaven. Nowhere in the Bible are we ever given the ultimatum that if you can do these things, then you will be admitted into heaven. But rather, the things that are written here that Jesus preached and that Jesus repeated so that we would have it in our minds as something that's emphatically spoken by him, These things are what make us representatives of him in the world and a reflection of his character uh, and, and the ideal of what he's seeking to make us. Now, understand this, that his desire, that is God's desire for our lives, is twofold as revealed through this sermon. Number one is that we would live blessed and fulfilled lives. That's what God wants. That's his desire. And that is what Jesus gave in the first portion of the sermon in that section called the Beatitudes. Supreme blessedness comes from, and then Jesus gave that list of things that we carefully looked through last week. And that is God's desire for each of us that we would be blessed. He made us for the purpose of blessing, that he wants us to experience life in the fullness of what it was made for. But then the second thing that God wants for our lives on this earth is that we would live as representatives of himself to a world that is at enmity with him and that doesn't know him. And so that's God's secondary purpose for us being here on this world. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor or its, you know, flavor what it does, then it is good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. In other words, your presence here on this earth as a Christian or a believer in Christ does something and has an effect upon the world that you live in. And if your life doesn't have an effect upon the world that you live in, and if you're not living in such a way that you're being a representative of God to a lost world, then what Jesus is saying is not that you are good for nothing, because you're not good for nothing. You were good enough that he was willing to go to the cross and die for you. I would say that's pretty valuable. But what is good for nothing is your presence here. Because what purpose would there be in God leaving us in the world right now if there was nothing for us to do here? Why not just take us to heaven the moment that we get saved? But the fact that he did leave us here means that there's something for us to do here. And what that something is, is that he wants for us to be a representation of him to the world in which we live. And so both aspects 
of what God wants for our lives are important. He wants us to be blessed. And I would say we'd all say amen to that. Every one of us wants to live a full life. But the other side of it is that we have a job to do. There's a representation that we're to bring to a lost and dying world. And so the question that remains as we resume at this portion of the sermon is what does that look like and how do we do it? And so as we pick up in verse 27, the question that's before us is what does God desire of us? And so he gives us this passage and he gives to us in it a command and then he gives us reasons for that command and then he gives us the how. So if you would read with me from verse 27 and we'll hear what Jesus has to say to us tonight. He says, but I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smites you on one cheek, offer also the other. And him that takes away your cloak, forbid not to take away your coat also. Give to every man that asks of thee. And of him that takes away thy goods, ask them not again. And as you would that men should do to you, so you also to them likewise. For if you love them which love you, what thank have you? For sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good to them which do good to you, what thank have you? For sinners also even do the same. And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have you? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and you shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure." Pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom for with the same measure that you meet or give with all it shall be measured unto you again. And so now what does God require of us? Now last week, what did God do for us or how does he give to us blessing in our lives? And now what does God ask of us? And so a command and then the reasons for the command and then how to do it. He begins the portion tonight by saying to us, but I say unto you. And you can almost pass over those words in such a way as you think, well, okay, that's just Jesus getting ready to say something. But those words are actually quite significant, and here's why. Because throughout the Old Testament, whenever anyone would speak on behalf of God, the words that they would preface their statements with was, thus saith the Lord. They would always say, thus speaketh Jehovah, or thus saith the Lord, or thus saith the Spirit. And then they would say the word of God. But you'll notice that Jesus never says that. He never once says, thus saith the Lord. He always says, I say unto you. Truly, truly, I say unto you. Verily, I say unto you. And here's the reason why. Because he is the Lord. He doesn't have to say, thus saith the Lord, because he is God in the flesh speaking to man. And now he's about to give what the Bible or Bible scholars have called throughout the years the golden rule of what God requires of man. And so he says, but I say unto you, and then he adds in almost parenthetically, 
unto those of you which hear. Now, isn't that interesting? Because Jesus, right off the bat, knows that only part of the audience that's listening to these things is going to be able to hear with understanding the things that he's about to say. It's interesting, isn't it, how you can be in a room and you can be hearing something that's going in and you understand the language, but yet it's not crossing the barrier from the mind into the heart, and so you're hearing it, but you're not really hearing it. I think us husbands understand perfectly what that means. Things that our wives say to us, and we hear them, and we could even repeat what they said, but we didn't really hear them, you know, what it is that they're asking and what it is that they're saying. But here's the amazing thing about spiritual things, is that it is possible to hear them without hearing them. In fact, tonight, there's probably many, maybe, hopefully not many, but maybe some here that you're hearing, but you're not really hearing. The reason I know that is because I did that for 19 years of my life. For 19 years of my life, I sat in a church and I heard spiritual things, but I never heard spiritual things. They were going in and I could repeat the concepts. I could quote the verses or say the prayers with my eyes closed, but they had absolutely no meaning to me. And so it takes a work of the Holy Spirit to open the ears of an audience and allow them to hear what not the man is saying conceptually, but what the Spirit is breathing out eternally. That's what God's desire is. And so the Spirit awakens that within someone. And here's how you know when you're hearing, when you're hearing really what God has to say and you're understanding it in your heart, is that first of all, it makes sense. Is that there's a sense and a resonating of the truth of it in your heart wherein you know that what's being spoken is absolutely right and it's deeper than just an ideal. And then that understanding is coupled with the motivation to see that truth worked out in your life. And Jesus knew that the things that he was about to say were so challenging and so much the opposite of the conventional thinking of the natural man that there would be many there that wouldn't be able to hear the things that he was going to say, though they would agree with them and nod their heads. But to hear it and to do it is something totally uh, different in and of itself. And so then he gives the command. And here's the command. He says, love your enemies. Now, I don't know what it was like when that was spoken for the first time. Because that was never spoken from the mouth of any teacher or any philosopher that had ever lived prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. He said, love your enemies. What does that mean? And so Jesus goes on and he says, here's what it means. It means do good to those that use you. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those that that despitefully use you. Turn the other cheek to those that smite you. And don't resist the evil that people seek to do to you. And do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And so he doesn't just make the statement. But then he defines the statement by describing it in the strongest possible terms. And so who is it that we're being commanded to love? Jesus very simply calls them our enemies. So you say, okay, what does that mean? Who is my enemy in this whole thing of who I'm supposed to love? Well, the definition of the word very simply is someone who is odious, someone who's hateful, someone who is actively hostile, and believe it, this is in the lexicon, a hater. That's what your enemy is, is someone who is just uh, actively hostile towards you. Now, understand that that bears, for you and I, different degrees of, 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 of enemy rating or degrees of difficulty when it comes to loving our enemies. 
The very generic sense or the first sketch that we could give is just someone in our lives who openly opposes us. In fact, that's the classical thing that you hear when you uh, think about this passage is this someone in your life who is just that. You you know what I'm talking about. That person that just you can't stand when they walk into a room. They openly oppose you. They seek to make your life miserable. Maybe someone that you work with or someone that you live by or, or someone who's in your life. The second sketch would be someone perhaps that that you would call a friend. And they're your friend. You think they're your friend. And they're so nice to you when they're in your face and when you're around them and there's a bright smile and, and everything just seems right. But you know because you've heard them behind your back say things about you that they don't feel the same way about you behind your back as they present themselves to you when they're in your face. And so you give them all the pleasantries and you put on the love your enemies type of thing. But you know that behind the scenes, they hate your guts. And the temptation for you is to reciprocate that feeling just the same. Now, that's one degree of loving your enemies. But really, for us to say, okay, well, I love my enemy, that's actually quite easy. Because at the end of the day, we go home from our job or we move from our neighborhood eventually, and those people are in our lives 24-7 constantly. But what happens when the enemy comes a little bit closer to home? What happens when the enemy happens to be someone perhaps that we don't even know, but it's a policymaker or a politician? Maybe someone who calls the shots in our workplace or makes the laws in our society. And they're directly responsible through what they do for making your life more difficult. They do things that erase your life savings through their policy and what they do. They interrupt your retirement plans. They do things that change the very culture that makes it pleasant for you to be a Christian in the world that we live in. And you see the things that they're doing, you understand the consequences of those laws and policies, and you see how it directly affects you, and you feel it. How do you feel towards those people? When you see them speaking on the TV set and giving their speeches and giving elevated platitudes, what goes on in your heart and in your mind? Are you able to look at them with love and actually love your enemies? What about when you flip the channel And you see that there's a race rivalry that results in someone being killed for nothing more than their skin color. And there's nothing that you can do to, you know, justify or make sense of what's going on. And you look at what just happened and you see injustice in it. And you look at someone, what they did, and you see that it is absolutely wrong and that there's a crime that's been committed. And rather than being convicted for that crime, they're being acquitted from that crime because of perhaps the position that they hold. And you look at it and you say, that's not fair. It's not right. There's a problem with that. And what can happen is that naturally, hatred can rise up within the heart of those people that are seeing it and that feel offended by it. Can I love my enemy? Or on the flip side of it, you see the response to something like that that's happening in the society. And you see the unruly, unreasonableness of that response. And you go, what in the world is this? They're burning down stores. They're destroying useless or destroying property uselessly. What is the purpose and the point? And you can look at it and you can allow the divide that's already being created to separate and breed even more hatred. Are you able to look at those people, whichever side of the rivalry that they're on, and say, God, by your grace, can I love my enemies? What about the doctor? 
in your own life or in the life of someone you love. And that doctor caves to the industry. And they see you in the condition that you're in. And they don't really know what's wrong with you. But they seize the opportunity to get you into a very expensive and very chronic course of treatment. They don't even know what the problem is. And it could be just a virus that's working its way through your system or something that maybe just takes a little bit longer to pass. But they look at you and they say, oh, it's Crohn's. And you need to be on this course of prescription and see through these treatments for the rest of your life. And it's something that you'll deal with forever. Or what you're dealing with isn't the normal, necessary, grieving process of losing a loved one. But rather, you need to go on medication to work this thing through because you are clinically depressed and chemically imbalanced. And perhaps that's not what's going on with you at all. Perhaps you're going through something very normal, a normal part of life, even a normal part of Christian life, as God deepens and develops you through the trials, tribulations, and oppressions that you're going through for that season. But that doctor looks at you, And they put you into a course of treatment that subtracts from you quality years from your life. And you see that happen. And one day you wake up and you realize, I was taken advantage of. I was robbed by someone for the sake of extracting from me or from my insurance policy something that's completely unnecessary. Can I look at that person that's ripped me off like that? And can I love them? Or perhaps it goes a little bit deeper. And you come to an age or a time in your life where you realize that there was a parent Or maybe it was a pastor. Or it was someone who was supposed to be trusted, someone who you looked up to, someone who was responsible for your well-being and for your care. And you found out through just the course and experience of life that their motives were actually impure. That the things that they did, the reasons behind the things that they did, were not at all for your benefit, but they were building their own life or their own good upon your back And that there was actually no care or concern for you at all in the whole thing. And one day you wake up on the other side of that and you realize the cost that it's borne you. And can you look at that parent or that pastor or that person that you trusted? And can you love them knowing that you are suffering because of what they did to you? Someone you would call your enemy. What about the friend or the group of friends in your child's life that's directly responsible for getting them hooked on something that has destroyed them. Or the young man who perhaps got your daughter pregnant out of wedlock. And you see the corruption and the false leading that that person has been in their life, and you see what it has cost them. Who is my enemy? Now, what does Jesus say we're to do to our enemies? He says, love do good, bless, pray for, suffer, and give. That is, we are called by Christ right now to love the person who's inflicted the most pain and the most harm within our life. And what we suddenly realize here is that we're dealing with something that Jesus is putting before us that goes way beyond the glib sayings of a charismatic teacher. That this isn't just, oh, wow, well, this is good. This is the highest golden rule that's ever been given but to realize that the enemies that we can face in this life have inflicted serious harm upon us. Is that really what he means? And how far does this go? Where do we draw the line where an enemy is allowed to be an enemy? And does love my enemies really mean love my enemies? Now understand that what Jesus is not asking us to do in this instance is to feel differently than we feel. 
Because when you look at the person who truly is your enemy within your life, you, like me, don't feel loving, fuzzy feelings toward that person or towards those people. And Jesus isn't asking you to feel differently than you feel towards them. He's also not asking you to play the hypocrite and to say that you feel differently than you feel. Oh, I love them. I love those people that are destroying our country right now while we're sitting by and watching it happen. I love, And we say it, but internally, inside, we're seething. And we know that we're just lying and we're playing the hypocrite. Jesus never asks us to play the hypocrite. But what Jesus is asking you and I to do through this is he's asking us to act differently than we feel. Notice that the response or the action that's associated with loving their enemies, they are verbs. They are love, do good, bless, pray for, endure, give. In other words, the action that we take with people that are our enemies is to be different than what we feel like doing to our enemies. That is, I'm not to respond the way my feelings tell me to respond, but rather I'm to respond according to the protocol that's been prescribed by God in his word. And what I find Jesus saying here is that that protocol is the exact opposite of what I would do in my natural self. So the question that you have naturally as you hear Jesus say these things is why? Why do I have to love my enemy? Because I don't want to love my enemy. Everything that's within me is not telling me that. So why is it that I have to do it? And Jesus gives two reasons as he goes on in the text. And the first reason is this, is because when you love your enemies instead of hating your enemies, it makes you different than everyone else. And you'll notice the illustration that Jesus gives in attaching that concept to it. Notice what he says in verse uh, 32. He says, if you love them just that love you, what thank do you have? For sinners also love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what thank have you? For sinners also do the same. And if you lend to them whom you hope, from whom you hope to receive, what thank do you have? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. In other words, if we play as Christians by the same rules that the world plays, then we are no different than anyone else in the world. But when we can look at our enemies and we can actively love them in spite of what they've done to us or what they are doing to us, then that sends a very clear and loud distinction in the eye of the enemy and the eye of the beholder that says this person is different. There's something about their life that is beating to a different rhythm. They're walking according to a higher truth and a higher ideal. And what is it that's in their lives? Do you understand that God's desire for human beings is that there's change? That's what God wants. In other words, when God looks at the person in your life that's burned you the most or the person that is your worst enemy or the person that you just can't stand to be around because of what they represent to you, When God looks at that person, he doesn't share that same sentiment that you have towards them. God loves that person, and God has a desire to reach that person, and God has the power to change that person. That's what God wants to do. He wants to bring about change. And so how is he going to do it? Change begins, listen, when someone lays down. Do you understand that hatred can never bring about healing. It can only breed more hatred. That's all it will ever do. 
So if someone hates you and you respond to that hatred with hate, then all that does is deepen the cycle of hate and it spreads hate towards others. That's what happens. Hate only brings hate, never brings healing. But what brings healing is when someone on one side of that hate-hate relationship lays down and chooses to respond to hate with love rather than with revenge or with bitterness or with gossip or slander or vengeance or whatever else that we would do naturally. And so if we choose to use hate as our response to hate, then the answer is is just a spiral of death. It doesn't fix the problem, and we never find satisfaction even in that. But understand this, that when love is given in exchange for hate, then there's something powerful that takes place. And what that does in a person's heart is kind of like an AED. You ever seen the paddles that they use on someone who's dying <laughs> or their heart stopped beating? And they, and they say clear, and they shock them. And there's like this convulsion that happens inside and it kind of shocks the heart to come back to life. And when a person responds to hatred in the way that Jesus is saying here, that's what takes place in the heart of the hater is that there's a shock that happens. They look at it. They they were expecting something else to come in return. But rather than being hit back with hatred or resentment or a fake smile or a plastic facade, They're hit back with something that's genuine, something that's sincere, something that's real, something that's sacrificial, something that costs you something, whether it be even just the laying down of your pride. And so you give love in response for hate, and it causes the person to immediately wake up a little bit. And at least in their mind to ask the question, am I, could I possibly be wrong in the way that I've been dealing with this person or in the way that I've been treating this person? Now, they might not show you that emotion in their face. And they might go on treating you the exact same way and seeing if your reaction will, 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 will stay the same or increase or intensify. But understand this, that when you respond to hatred with love, it does something in the heart. That's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. He was consenting to the death of Stephen, who was testifying of Jesus. It says that he was gnashing on him with his teeth and he was even keeping the clothes of the young men who were stoning him to death. But Stephen, who was hated for his faith, responded to that hatred with love. It says that he looked at them with the face of an angel. And as he fell to his knees in his dying breath, he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And then he said, lay not this sin to their charge. And then the final rock struck him in the head and he died and gave up the ghost with the face of an angel, probably frozen that way. And the apostle Saul, who is sent by the Sanhedrin to persecute the church, ultimately became the apostle Paul because he couldn't get out of his mind what Stephen did when he was being hated. He was being loved. And the result of love being given in exchange for hate was that Paul was converted, his heart was changed, and there was redemption. And that's what God's desire is in the people that we are associated with within our lives. He wants to see change, and he wants to use us as the agent of that change. And so the first reason that Jesus gives for us to love our enemies is that it makes you different, and that difference makes a difference in someone's life, and it ultimately brings about healing and change in the person that's hating. Do you understand? The second reason that Jesus gives, that he wants us to love our enemies, is because when we love our enemies, there is no greater reflection of the Father that we can give 
to a lost world than when we do that. And that's what Jesus says in verse 35. He says, when you do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, your reward will be great, and you shall be children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and the unholy, uh, or uh, uh, to the evil. And so it makes you children of your father. And do you understand that this is exactly what God did? From the time of the Garden of Eden, God was at enmity with man. There was a rift that existed between heaven and earth. Mankind fell in sin, died in disobedience to God. And there was a rift between God and man. There was enmity, the Bible says. We were alienated from the life of God. We were separated from his spirit. We were abiding in darkness. We were living in the fruit of that sinful condition that we had brought upon ourselves through that rebellion. And there was a rift. There was no reconciliation. And God was in heaven, holy and perfect and righteous in everything that he did. There was no sin in him whatsoever. And we were on earth in our sins, lost, but in our pride, shaking our fist at heaven and saying, no, God, we're not going to repent. We're not going to apologize. We're not going to turn back to you. We're not going to acknowledge that you're holy or that you're righteous. We can govern ourselves. And there was a, a hate relationship between man and God. But the Bible says, that God so loved us. And so what did God do? He said in the middle of this relationship that was rifted, he said, I'll be the one that bears the wrong. In other words, if you can put it into human terms for a minute, you're at enmity with another person. And in the midst of that battle that you're having with someone else, there's a stance that you have that you're right, that you're not wrong, that you don't need to say sorry because of what you did. And they feel the same way. They stand secure in their position, saying, no, no, I'm right. And you need to, you, you're the reason why this relationship is bent and broken. And you need to fix it. And the rift only grows further. And it only grows until someone is willing to say, okay, I'm wrong. And here's the amazing thing, is that that's what God did. God was willing in his righteous perfection to look at fallen man and say, I was wrong. That's what the cross was. The cross was Jesus Christ absorbing in himself the sins of all humanity. And the reason why he did it was so that there could be reconciliation with man. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God even in him. And when he did that, he shocked the human race into an honest assessment of what is going on here. And it woke the human race up. And it even silenced heaven because the Bible says that even angels desire to look into these things. They don't understand it. How could a holy God profess that he is wrong? But that's what God did. And he did it by the cross. And so when we do it in our relationship with others, it heals the the rift uh, that exists because of sin. And so the question that remains now on the other side of it, we understand what he's asking us to do. We understand why he's asking us to do it and that it brings change about and it makes us a reflection and a representation of him, but it doesn't answer the big question. And the big question that remains for every one of us is how in the world do we do this? How can we take something that is so powerful, the effects that sin has had on us, what others have done, and turn it around and to choose to respond in love rather than uh, to, to repay evil for evil. Now, here's the amazing thing, is that every 
teaching I've ever heard on this topic. Every commentary that I read, every book that you know I thumbed through as I was going through and looking at these things, every book said the same thing when it came to the how of how we do this. You know what it was? It was very simple. You could probably say it for me. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And I agree. Yeah, we need supernatural Holy Spirit power if we're going to do this and make it right. But here's my only problem with that answer. It's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say anywhere in this text, you need Holy Spirit power. If you're going to, if you're going to try to do this, you're going to really need. Now, we're going to come back to it because there's Holy Spirit power involved. There always is in every how God gives. But what he gives to us is he gives us a set of things here, a list of things that we are to do in order to make this happen. And here's what it is. It comes at the end of our passage. He says, be ye, it's in verse uh, 36, he says, be ye therefore merciful as your father also is merciful. Do you see the word therefore? Whenever you see that word, it always attaches the previous thought to what he's going to say next. So when it comes to this concept of loving your enemies and doing good to those that hate you and blessing those that curse you and praying for those that use you and giving to those that ask, not hoping for anything in return again, and doing to others what you would have them to do unto you, the therefore or the how, first of all, is he gives us a command and he says, be you therefore merciful. That's number one that he calls us to do. He calls us to be merciful. Now, I looked up what the word merciful meant in the commentaries so that I could give you an accurate definition of it. And this is actually kind of humorous because I looked in two. I looked in Strong's and I looked in Thayer's, which are kind of the two that really, you know, you can get a full picture of a word. And you know what the definition was in both? Merciful. And I thought, great, that didn't help me one bit because you just gave me the definition is the word itself. You know? but, but what mercy actually is, it, mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. In other words, I deserve a punch in the face for what I did, or what I said, but I don't get the punch in the face. That's mercy. Okay? It means for you and I, when it talks about being merciful people, when it's a part of our character and not just something that we do in a specific instance, to be a merciful person means that I'm the kind of person that knows how to let it go. That when an offense comes my way or when a realization comes into my understanding that I'm being used or that someone's taking advantage of me or that someone just offended me, backhanded comment that I wasn't supposed to get, my attitude and my nature of it is that I'm supposed to be the kind of person that let it go and acts towards that person as though it never happened. Be merciful. Be a merciful type of person. Then the second thing that he tells us that we're to do, this is second action, my responsibility in it, is that I'm to judge not. And this is one of those famous verses that everybody pulls out of context. You know, judge not lest you be judged, brother. Judge not lest you be judged. It's kind of used every time someone is confronted about bad behavior. And, it, it, and you know, hey, you know, there's something to that. But in a minute, we probably won't get there tonight, Jesus is going to tell us that we are to judge. He's going to say, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You won't gather thorns from a grape tree. You're not going to gather figs from a thistle bush. So there is an evaluation that we're to make when we look at people's lives and and weigh the the, the verity of their claims and what they say. There is a judging that we're responsible to. 
But in the context of what he's saying here is that we're not to jump to conclusions about why a person did something or why a person is doing something or conclusions about the type of person that a person is uh, because of what they're doing or the motives behind it. That's what we're not to judge. We have no idea what is going on behind the veil or in the heart of a person who's acting a particular way. And Jesus is telling us, don't try to figure it out. You and I will never understand the why behind what people are doing. And here's what the Bible says. It says that every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Which means that every action that every person does, they have a reason for it. They can justify it. They can look at what they're doing and they could say, well, I'm doing this because of this. And here's the amazing thing is that if you were that person, you would probably do the same thing and you would probably be the same way. And Jesus understands that. And so he says, because you can't see what's going on on the inside, don't try to figure it out and come to conclusions on the outside because you're almost always going to be wrong. It deals with the cross between intentions and actions. Think about it in your own life. Have you ever intended to do the right thing, but your actions were different? And and you kind of justify your actions based upon your intentions. Well, I meant to call that person back that asked for a phone call or that needed a favor. Or I meant to return the rake that I borrowed four years ago. (laughs) You know, I meant to, and, and I almost did it like a thousand times, but you didn't. Your actions were complete failure, but your intentions were good. So what we end up doing is we end up judging others according to their actions forgetting their intentions, and we judge ourselves according to our intentions. Do you see the misbalance there? Well, I meant to do okay, so I'm okay. They did wrong, so they're a piece of dirt. <laughs> you know. And that's kind of the way that we measure people. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't judge. Don't be a judgmental type of person. The third thing that he tells us that we're not to do is he says, condemn not, and you also will not be condemned. Now, we are so good at condemning. And we are so apt to condemn people for what they do that we actually dropped a syllable off of that word because we couldn't say both syllables. We used it so much. So we don't say condemn you. We just say damn you, you know, and that's our that's our thing. We we didn't want to pay for the extra three letters on the stamp because that's how often we use it. We look at things. We go condemned, condemned. You know, I I, I don't want to say the the word that we use because you understand, you know. But here's the idea that Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, don't condemn, and here's why. Because love hopes all things. And when you condemn something, what you're doing is you're placing a final judgment upon it and saying that it cannot be redeemed. And don't ever do that because love hopes all things. And it doesn't matter if it's a person, they aren't condemned unto finality because they can still be reached with the gospel and give their lives to Christ and be changed. A relationship cannot be condemned because God might want to redeem that relationship by you laying down your life and bringing reconciliation in the relationship, so don't condemn the relationship. A circumstance that you might be going through in your life that isn't even another person, but you look at it and you say, this situation is my enemy. God says, don't condemn it because that might not be condemned. I might be using that situation and I may redeem that circumstance in your life and work it together for good in a way that you'll understand one day and you'll be blessed by it. So don't condemn in the whole thing. And then he goes on to say, forgive. 
to be a forgiving person. And then he goes on to say, give, be a giving person in the context of all of these other things. Liberally give away forgiveness and grace and mercy and no condemnation and love. Just be a giver of love. Let it fountain and flow from your life. And he ends it off by laying before us and saying, don't forget that you need it as much as they need it. That with whatever measure you give it away, it will be given to you again. And may we never forget that if it wasn't for the mercy and the grace that God gave to each one of us, that we would be lost completely in our sin. And so the how in this is that we agree with God to make us and allow us to be this type of person, a merciful person, a non-judgmental person, a non-condemning person, a person who forgives, a person who gives grace, and a person who remembers where they came from. And Jesus commands us that if we want to be those that love our enemies, that's the kind of people that we need to be. And that takes a couple of things. It takes humility, first of all. It takes a humble person to be that kind of person. It takes someone who's willing to allow someone else to have the upper hand over you. You ever seen chickens? We used to have chickens. My kids are begging me to get chickens again, but my kids don't want to clean the chicken pen. And if you ever had chickens, you understand <laughs> why I don't want chickens, you know, and, and all of that. But it was a great experience for that four months that they lived. <laughs> Make the hole a little wider, the raccoon's getting easier, you know. <laughs> But the chickens always have a pecking order. And, and so there's the dominant chicken that can peck everybody else. And then there's the, the intermediate chickens that can peck the ones that are lower than them, but they can't peck the ones that are higher. And then there's the chicken that can't peck any other chickens, and that chicken always dies. Because he just, they, they take bites of him. They torment the poor chicken. No feathers. I mean, he just, he looks decrepit. You say, the poor thing, you know. But if you kill it, then there's a new you know, low chicken, and he gets pecked to death, and so the whole thing. Here's the idea. Here's what it is. Here's what humility is. Humility is a willingness to be pecked even when you're strong enough to be the one who pecks. That's what humility is, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's like, listen, you have the strength to declare your righteousness in a situation. But what I'm asking you to do is to be the type of person that allows others to peck you even though you don't maybe deserve to be pecked or like being pecked because of what it does within their lives. So it takes humility, but it also takes meekness. That's a word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about these same types of things. And here's what meekness is. Meekness is strength that is under the Spirit's control. Now, strength by itself responds to things a certain way. I mean, if someone offends you and you're a strong person, then the way that you respond to that offense is with, with wrath or with vengeance or with, you know, a fist, you know, or, or whatever it is that you're inclined to do or whatever the situation dictates. That's strength that's not under control. But now you take that same strength and you bring it under subjection to the Spirit's will within your life. And now what the result of that is, is what the Bible calls meekness. And the idea is if you could, I remember we went um, one year to the Outer Banks and there's a place there where there's wild horses. And you see these things and they look just like every other horse, but they say, don't ever go near those horses because you'll die. 
because they're they're not they're unbroken. They can't be around people, and if they see you, they'll kick you or stomp you. You know, so it's it's a stallion that's unbroken. Now, if you take that stallion and you break it, meaning that you 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 know you bring it under your subjection, you have not subtracted one bit of strength from that stallion. But what you've done is you've taken its strength now and you've channeled it productively where now that thing can be used for constructive means rather than for destructive means. And so for a meek person, that means that the strength that you have, and God's the one that gives us the strength that we have, we don't lay down and just be a dead chicken. But we rather allow the spirit to channel that strength in such a way that it's productive for his purposes. And then he can work in a situation or in a relationship or in people's lives as he uses it as we are able then to love our enemies through the things that he does. So then, what is the Holy Spirit's role in bringing these things to bear upon our lives as we draw to a close? Understand this. In the last segment that we studied, not our last teaching because we were in the sermon, but just before Jesus began to give the sermon, the last thing that Jesus did before it is that he stood in a synagogue where he was being evaluated by the Pharisees and religious rulers of the day. And in the midst of the crowd that was sitting there gathered, there was a man that had a withered and a crippled hand. And Jesus drew the attention of everyone in the room to that man with the crippled hand because he knew that he was the bone of contention that the Pharisees would have with him. Will he heal on the Sabbath day? And Jesus called that man to stand up and he asked him to do something that was humanly impossible. He said, stretch out your hand. And the man at that point had an opportunity to either make excuses for why he couldn't because it was contrary to his crippled nature. Or he could try to stretch out his hand one more time, believing that the commandment of the Savior would be met by the power to obey the command that was given. And what we saw there is through the power of Christ giving a command, a man who was willing to obey, he found that the Holy Spirit power was there and what was once withered now was healed. Well, what Jesus just presented to each one of us here tonight is something that is humanly impossible. He asked us to love our enemies, not the guy at work, but the person who truly is your enemy. And every one of us has those people in our lives that they're the agent of Satan to one degree or another. And what he is asking us to do is to love them, not with a phony and hypocritical love, but a love that is active and sincere, that hopes for redemption and change, that is willing to forgive and give mercy and to consider yourself as lower and less and worse than what they are. And you can look at Jesus as he gives that command and you could say, Lord, that is something that perhaps at one point that was possible in the human race. For maybe when you made Adam in the garden, you gave him the propensity to do that, but that is something that has long since withered and there's no longer that ability. Because human beings don't do that. We don't repay evil with good. We repay evil with hatred and bitterness and vengeance. But if you and I would listen to the command of our Savior and understand that his commandments are always his enablements, then he's the one that then gives us the grace that as we begin to stretch out the hand and we desire to be merciful people, he gives us the strength to be merciful to those that don't deserve it. 
As we stretch out our hand and give the, 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 the effort to be a forgiving person or a non-judgmental person or a person who doesn't condemn or a person who responds with meekness and love rather than with wrath and hostility, when we do what he's asked us to do, that's when Holy Spirit power comes into our life and allows us to be who it is that Jesus asked us to do. And here's what Jesus is saying to those of us that desire to live this kind of life is that there is Holy Spirit power available to us when we step forward and desire to be the type of people that he's asking us to be. And we will see the fruit of that change, not just in us as we become loving people, but we'll see the fruit of it in others as we watch them lay down their lives at the foot of the same cross we came to, and they are then ultimately changed. That's the desire of God within our life. How many here have ever been on an airplane? For all of us, we're out of our minds. I still look up in the air, and when I see an airplane, I, I say, how in the world is that thing that weighs multiplied tons flying over my head, and who in their right mind would get in it? And yet I do it, and I'm not afraid of it, and I like it. It's fun. I look forward to, to the opportunities when, when they come. But who in their right mind would ever do it? And the reason why you say that is because it looks impossible. Because the law of gravity is something that we're all familiar with. My one-year-old son, Noah, who is my Noah, and you, and you parents, we have you know, two really good kids, and then you get a Noah, you know. <laughs> I have four really good kids and I have a Noah, you know, and he just look, comes into a room and he looks for a light socket. I mean, he, he just, whatever, he's not supposed to be and that's what he does. And here's what he did today. He was out on the deck and I was talking to Georgia and I was saying something to her and I looked down and he picked up a boulder, okay? And I don't know why there was a boulder on my deck because I didn't put it there. One of the kids found it is smooth and they're like, this is a cool red rock, let's put it on the deck. He picked it up, he threw it on my wife's foot. Okay, and you'll see her tonight walking with a limp. That's Noah, okay? <laughs> so cute. You go, oh, he's a moon. He's a Noah, all right. Gravity. We all understand it. We're, we're, we're sobered by it because we've fallen or we've had a rock fall on our feet. We understand what it is. And so for us to get into an airplane doesn't make any sense at all. And so you look at an airplane and you say, is that airplane cheating the law of gravity? Or is the law of aerodynamics negating the law of gravity? And the answer is no. It's not negating it. It's superseding it. In other words, the law of aerodynamics supersedes the law of gravity. And here's what Jesus is saying to you and I tonight. Is that there is a natural law. And that there is a heaviness and there is a fall that takes place. And relationships fall. And people fall. And destinies fall. And things fall because of the sin that's in this world. But there is a law that exists in my kingdom that so supersedes the law of sin and death that you can find, if you'll yield to that law, that there is a power for you to do what for others is humanly impossible. And so he calls us to be the type of people that love our enemies sincerely. And that that love is met not with platitudes and words, but by actions and sincere desire to see change and transformation take place in their life. 
and that when we will do good to those that hate us, when we will pray for those that despitefully use us and curse us, and when we will bless those who are genuinely set to see our demise, we will see a law of the Spirit and a power of the Spirit present in our lives that is unmatched by anything else that exists in all of this world. And so Jesus gives to us the command, love your enemies. That is what he requires of us. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the word. We thank you, Lord, for what it speaks to us. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of it. And we thank you even, Lord, for the impossibility of it. As we consider, Lord, that we are unable to produce even the smallest bit of change in ourselves. But Lord, your commandments are always your enablements. And what you're asking of us tonight, Lord, is reasonable and it's powerful and it's wonderful. And Lord, each one of us have tasted the mercy that you give. For all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we have nothing to bring to you, Lord, but our sinful selves. But we're trusting, Lord, that tonight you can make a change. And that you can change us. And that no longer would we respond to worldly things in worldly ways. But Lord, you'd give us the grace to do what it is that you've asked of us. And so please, Lord, would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit tonight. Would you make us new from the inside out? Would you allow us to taste and see your goodness and your grace? And would you send us forth out of here free and changed from the way that we came in? that we would have the ability to forgive those, Lord, that tonight we hold resentment against and towards, that you would give us the ability to show love actively towards those, Lord, whom we so detest in ourselves and in our flesh, and that we would be those type of people, Lord, that you would be proud of, that you would look at us and say, that's the representation of my Father in a lost world. You are the salt of the earth. And so we're asking tonight, Lord, that you would make that real for each one of us. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Let's stand together.